These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. History rarely gives us nice, clean breaks where we can transition from one chapter to the next. Every day follows from the day before, and even the biggest events and transition points always have larger trends baked into them. A number of episodes ago, we put down the story of Mesopotamia to take a look at the northern players, using the sack of Babylon as our chapter break. And as far as it goes, there are few events that provide better closure to a dynasty or time period than that. But still, even here, we see that the seeds of the next era had already been planted and were just waiting for the brush to be cleared before emerging. These seeds are the Kassites. And today, it's time for them to rebuild Babylon. We met the Kassites way back in the fall of old Babylon. And to be clear, since going forth there will be multiple Babylonian eras, the Babylon of Hammurabi's dynasty is usually called the Old Babylonian Period, or just Old Babylon, while the new rising Babylon under the Kassites is called the Middle Babylon, or Kassite Babylon. And many episodes from now, we'll encounter what's probably the most famous Chaldean or Neo-Babylonian Empire. But... Way back in Old Babylon, as Hammurabi's dynasty was coming to a close, we encountered some new and mysterious visitors. These folks were nomads from the Zagros Mountains, from a place called Galzu, somewhere near the source of the Diala River. And while it still isn't clear if they were Indo-European or not, they appeared alongside the greater Indo-European migrations to enter in sometime shortly after Hammurabi's death. Their first sudden appearance in 1742 BCE was an unstoppable, destructive whirlwind, pushing deep into the heart of Babylonia faster and harder than anyone knew how to react. It isn't even really clear if the Babylonians actually defeated them or if they just ran out of steam and didn't have the numbers to push further before carrying their plunder back to wherever they came from. Following that blitzkrieg, however, a much broader migration followed, one which was sometimes peaceful and sometimes violent, but saw Kassite elements integrating into the old Babylonian order, bringing in the horses and chariots that had made them so devastating. Once the Babylonians were able to understand chariot warfare, subsequent attacks by other Kassite groups were repelled more consistently, though even the might of the united Babylonian kingdom still struggled against this new weapon at times, even with Kassite groups integrated into the army. In the old period, we see the Kassites in only two contexts. When they are enemies, very little is recorded about them, though as interactions between Babylonians and Kassites continued, we start to see the Babylonians recording the specific Kassite houses that are attacking, instead of simply lumping all Kassites together. This is because other Kassite houses are by this point part of Babylonian society, though even here we don't see too much detail about them. We know that the Kassites tended to live separately in their own camps organized by houses, which is approximately equivalent to tribe or clan, each named for some distant ancestor. 
these camps are organized in semi-military fashion, suggesting that the entire social order was based at least partly around raiding and being able to repel enemy raids. Now, this is far from uncommon among Near East nomad groups. One needs only to look at the biblical Hebrews after the book of Exodus to see a similar social military organization. These camps seem to have moved around a lot. One of our best sources comes from a late old Babylonian fort, which appears to have played regular host to Kassite bands of various size, consisting of a few charioteers and a number of foot soldiers as they passed through. Typically, they would stop at the fort for a few weeks to resupply and rest, and then move on somewhere else, probably to rest there for just a few more weeks before, in turn, moving on. There were non-military Kassites, attested from seeing Kassite names in business contracts for civilian work, though there are hints that even these went back each night to the camps of their house, somewhere outside the city walls. And of course, the Kassites don't just move into Babylonia. There are some who make it all the way down into South Sumer, into the land being held by the southern Sealand dynasty, as well as into Syria. And there are plenty who are still in the Zagros Mountains, having never bothered to leave the ancestral homeland for whatever reason. Because when I say the Kassites, we shouldn't be thinking them as a unified body. Rather, they're just an ethnic group comprising numerous independent houses, each making the decision to move, raid, or integrate based on their own opinions and conditions. Aside from this, however, we could say nearly nothing about the culture of the Kassites themselves. They had their own set of gods, which they worshipped on their own. But like most ancient polytheists, they were perfectly respectful of the gods in whatever place they found themselves. It does not appear that the worship of Kassite deities spread to the general populace, and it may not have been open to non-Kassites, which reflects a general pattern in which pretty much nothing of Kassite culture would ever be written down, not the language, not their particular rituals, and while we know it was always the language spoken by the elite f due to finding loanword lists translating from Akkadian to Kassite, Akkadian was pretty much the only language anyone wrote in by this point. There was a bit of vestigial Sumerian that was preserved kind of like how Latin is today as a dead academic language, but it's pretty much all Akkadian at this point. But these Akkadian Kassite word lists, along with the Kassite loanwords that entered the Akkadian language at this point, pretty much exclusively focused on words for horses and chariots, as well as the personal names of Kassites, is unfortunately not enough to reconstruct the language adequately, or tell what other languages it may be related to. Now, you'll sometimes see Kassite listed as a language isolate, but while this may well be the case, this is more of a default classification, just because we don't know enough about Kassite to make any family relations. Now, you also see people claiming that they are undoubtedly Indo-European, but again, while this may be true, we simply can't know right now. Another thing that's disputed is the role of the Kassites in the fall of Old Babylon. But here it's most instructive to recall that to talk about the role of the Kassites as if they were some unified force at this point is simply mistaken. We can define four sides in the collapse of Babylon, and on all four sides there may well have been Kassite houses. 
the invading forces who plagued the reign of the final king, Samsuditana, almost certainly contained Kassites, though it may have also included Elamites, Sealand, and many other assorted barbarian groups, attacking either as a coordinated conspiracy or as a group of opportunists preying upon Babylon's weaknesses. Additionally, we have indications that as Babylon began to fall, many forts were beset by a rash of mutinies in which the Kassites played some role. Additionally, there's no reason to think that the military forces which stayed loyal to the declining empire did not include Kassites. And finally, Perhaps most importantly, it's possible, though far from certain, that the whole reason that the Hittite great king Mershali II made the trip down to Babylon was because of an offer from the Kassites for some sort of alliance. The details on what kind of alliance may have been made are a bit obscure. If this was just a group plundering, or if this was some sort of political agreement that was struck between the two powers... However, whatever may have been planned here, pretty much nothing was done with Mesopotamia after the sacking of Babylon in the fateful year of 1595 BCE. Indeed, there is much that is unclear after this, for nearly every major city in Babylonia suffers from substantial depopulation, and a dark age of essentially no urbanism follows for at least a generation. Later records speak of this time as a time when houses were empty, land borders were forgotten, and legal records were lost, suggesting that throughout the region there simply weren't enough people left to maintain basic property rights, and that in whole communities no one could recall what ancestral rights belonged to who anymore. And in fact, the record here is so dark and hard to interpret that estimates of how long it lasted range from anything from a bit over 20 years all the way to 140 years. More recent evidence, however, takes into account our slowly improving understanding of the concurrent Hittite and Sealand kingdoms, though both of them are fairly obscure during this period as well. It is becoming increasingly clear that the period of mass depopulation within Mesopotamia probably lasted about a century, perhaps a bit less, by which point the new Kassite rulers of Babylon were able to take the lead in rebuilding the whole region region, and establish the foundations of the Middle Babylonian Kingdom. Still, even though there are clear signs of Babylon beginning to rebuild by 1500 BCE, we aren't going to have enough records to start assigning firm dates to anything until at least a hundred years after that. But that doesn't mean there's nothing we can say about the rebuilding of Babylon. With the Great Sack of 1595, things were bad for people who lived in cities. The nomads who took cities may have driven people out into the countryside in order to prevent concentrations of force that were hard for them to dominate. Similarly, the Sealand dynasty, the obscure rulers ruling from the swamps of modern-day Kuwait, may have deliberately fostered de-urbanization as a strategy to maintain control over the region. And for those who held to their walls and cities, Elamite and Hittite armies took a substantial population back to their homelands for slaves. 
Additionally, agricultural productivity has been falling in the region for centuries, and the massive disruptions likely damaged this even further. But now we can pick up our story 24 years later, with a Kassite ruler named Agam Kakrime. Agam would not have started the story with himself, considering himself the ninth king of his house, which had been founded by a man named Gandash, or perhaps Gadash in different texts, a century or two earlier. But the tale of Agam is the tale of how he went from the lord of a Kassite house to the first king of the restored Babylon. We have two accounts of what happened, both couched in highly religious language and both separated by centuries from the actual event. But there are decent reasons to think that the underlying events are memories of something that may have actually happened. The first, a much later copy of an inscription ordered by Agam Kakrame, is perhaps the most interesting. The inscription begins with a fair bit of praise of Agam himself. Now here's where we get the name Kakrime, which is probably not actually a name, but some sort of title or epithet, though what exactly it meant is unclear and debatable. Here we see a number of gods that we've gotten quite used to seeing by now, invoked in the text. An and Enlil, Ea, Swen, Shamash are all listed alongside Marduk himself. In a separate spot, Agam claims to be a descendant of Shukwamanu, a Kassite god and one of the two gods who watch over his dynasty in particular, showing already that these Kassite gods are coexisting quite happily with the older Sumerian gods, as well as the great god of Babylon itself, Marduk. Along with Agam's other praises to himself, he claims to be the ruler over the land of Eshnunna, Gutium, and a few other places. He makes grandiose claims at being ruler over the whole world at the same time. But it seems likely that the places named specifically do in fact constitute his personal empire, suggesting that Agam and his descendants have used the Dark Age following Babylon's destruction to build a long and narrow empire focused very heavily on the Tigris River and its tributary, the Diyala, which itself pokes into the Zagros Mountains. It's from this power base that Agam likely entered into the much-diminished Babylon and established himself as ruler against what was likely very little or perhaps even no opposition. However, when Agam arrived in Babylon, he found one very big problem. The Esagula Temple, foremost temple of the city, house of the mighty patron god Marduk, was in fact empty. As was standard Hittite practice, the gods themselves were typically removed from a conquered city and brought back to Hattusha or one of the nearby temple complexes. Here, they would be honored and treated with reverence, but this was clearly a hostage situation for the defeated cities, and the idea that Babylon could be rebuilt without Marduk's blessing was simply unthinkable to Kassites and Babylonians alike. As Agam's inscription reads, When Marduk Lord of Esagila and Babylon was absent. The great gods ordered with their holy command his return to Babylon. So Marduk set his face towards Babylon, and I prayed to Marduk, who heard my prayers. I carefully planned to fetch Marduk, and toward Babylon I set his face. 
I went to the assistance of Marduk, who loves my kingship. I asked of King Shamash, the sun god, by divination, and then sent off to a far-off land, to the land of the Hanaeans. And they gave me not just Marduk, but also his wife, Sarpanitam, both of whom love my reign. And I returned them both to the Esagila temple in Babylon. This is the narrative core of the inscription, though it does continue at length about how Agam did a number of things required by the commands of gods to get everything set in ritual order, and then how he decorated the entire place with fine decorations. In exchange for these, though it isn't couched as an explicit trait, of course, Agam expects the great gods to bless his reign in flowery language. This is the general outline of the tale, and it's largely confirmed by another tale, one written by Marduk's own voice hundreds of years later. This second text is called the Marduk Prophecy, and we'll be seeing it again as it narrates some of the most important events in Kassite history, beginning right here at the beginning. I am Marduk, great lord, the most lofty one, he who inspects, he who goes back and forth through the mountains, the lofty one, inspector, who smites lands, he who constantly goes back and forth in the lands from sunrise to sunset, am I. I gave the command that I go to Hatti. I put Hatti to the test. There I set up the throne of my supreme godhead. For twenty-four years I dwelt there. I made it possible for Babylonians to send commercial expeditions there, and they marketed its fine goods in property in Sippar, Babylon, and Nippur. Then a king of Babylon arose and led me in procession to Babylon. Fair was the processional way of Babylon, on account of the crown of my supreme godhead, and the images of fine workmanship, blessed water, and fortunate winds. For three days I traveled down river. Finally I returned, and the king of Babylon cried out, Bring all your tribute, all the lands, bring it to Babylon. Here we have some of the most interesting details confirmed between the two accounts, but first to discuss the discrepancies. There is a small change in theological focus where Agam's account has Marduk's movements dictated by the higher gods, whereas by the time the Marduk prophecy has been written, the preeminence of Marduk in Babylonian theology has been confirmed for centuries. But this will be a gradual development created by the coming centuries of relative stability under the Kassite kings. What's provoked more debate is the question of where Marduk has been the last quarter century. There's no doubt that it was taken during the Hittite raid, but then we have two resting places for it. Did the cult statue make it all the way back to the Hittite homeland of Hatti, or did it stop halfway along the journey? The land of Hana is along the Euphrates River, a rump state made of the remnants of what used to be the Kingdom of Mari. One concern here is the question of just how big the statue was. If it was massive, it is possible that simple logistical questions would have necessitated leaving it behind once the voyage had turned from a river to a land trip. Additionally, Hana at this time was likely an ally or dependent of the Hittite Empire, here at the height of the Old Kingdom period, and was probably some part of the raid on Babylon. Therefore, it's conceivable that the cult statue could have been left in Hana, 
or carried all the way back to the Hittite homeland. Indeed, the three-day travel time suggested in the Marduk prophecy could be just a literary phrase, or it could represent that it wasn't, in fact, all the way in Hatti in the middle of Anatolia, but just up the Euphrates River in Hana. But there is a degree to which it doesn't really matter. Marduk was somewhere, but not in Babylon, and both Hana and the Hittites would generally have had aligned interests at this point, as far as we can tell. Far more interesting is the point on which both accounts appear to agree, that Agam did not win Marduk by force of arms, or even by selling off some important thing. Rather, it appears that Agam simply asked for the god's return, and the king of whichever land decided to return it as a gesture of goodwill. This could be an acknowledgement by the Hittites under Mershili's regicidal successor Hantili that the Hittite kingdom had no real interest so far away from the homeland, and that regional trade disrupted by the two predecessors' conquests was, in the long run, more valuable than the plunder that the campaigns had brought home was likely also acknowledgement that Agam's kingdom along the Tigris had made itself a decent regional power in the otherwise suffering and chaotic region. Now that Marduk is safely within his Babylonian palace temple, and Babylon itself is under the reign of an accomplished ruler, we have no clear idea what happens next. He ruled for a while, and things seem relatively peaceful, though there was likely a decent amount of conflict with raiders and nomads, perhaps a bit of military expansion. But equally likely is that the strength of the new Babylonian kingdom was itself pretty limited, meaning that even if the competition was in bad shape, there was little that Agam could do to exploit it, given the poor condition of his own kingdom. One thing we do see from an early period is a shift away from agricultural exploitation of the Euphrates region, where the land may be starting to suffer from salinity and general overuse, and where centuries of conflicting legal claims seem to have made clear title over any given field a bit unclear, over to the Tigris River Basin. This has two advantages. First of all, is that this is the land over which Agam has built his power base, and thus becomes the political power base for the new Babylonian state. But more importantly, there's more virgin, unworked land here, which both means that a ruler can simply carve out new land to hand out from nothing, and also that the land isn't exhausted from centuries of being worked. The question arises here, why would the Kassite kings care at all about the land claims of previous political organizations? Why didn't they just sweep in as conquerors and redistribute the land according to whatever's politically expedient? But this gets to a key part of Kassite rule, that they very explicitly didn't see themselves as conquerors, but as a continuation of a political and, more importantly, a cultural order, stretching back all the way to ancient Sumer. Respecting land claims is only a small part of this. Far more important, all the way here at the very beginning, is the wholesale adoption of the pre-existing Akkadian language, gods, culture, and practices. 
The Cassite period is going to be the time when many of the best preserved copies of a large number of Akkadian texts are written down, and the period when the Babylonian dialect of Akkadian will become enshrined as the standard language for scholarship and diplomacy throughout the Near East. But we'll be seeing plenty of examples of this as we continue to follow the story of Babylon, and it will be increasingly significant that right here, at the lowest point of the rest of the city's life. It is the deeply conservative Kassite dynasty, infatuated with the ancient legacy of Sumer and Akkad who restored the city, and not some innovating conqueror looking to build something new on the ruins of the old. But as for what that dynasty does for the next hundred years, we're forced mostly to look at trends like these, but there are a few specifics that we can share. After Agam Kakrume dies, he's replaced by his son the I. His name means Servant of Buryash, a native Kassite god, showing that within the ruling house they continue to venerate a handful of native gods, even while publicly promoting the ancient gods of Babylon. As you may recall, this is far from unusual, for it was very typical for a man to venerate three gods, or sets of gods, as personal protectors. First, the man's personal god, with whom he would have had a direct relationship, such as Buryash in this king's case. Then his family or tribal gods, these being the aforementioned Shukumunu, as well as his consort Shumalia, who protect the Kassite royal line, and his city god Marduk, who protects his city and nation. All this would be in conjunction with venerating the wide pantheon of god known to the ancients. Anyway, Burnaburyash seems to maintain and expand the stability and power of Babylonia, possibly being a treaty partner with an interesting little treaty with the sometimes rising, sometimes falling power of Assyria up in the north Tigris. Having inherited a Tigris River-focused empire, the northern border of the other Tigris River power at this time would have been of particular importance and having a secure treaty with the Assyrian king Puzzershulgi III, probably at this point divided the main trunk of the Tigris River into three peaceful segments, from a resurgent Assyria in the north, to Babylonia in the middle, to the quiet Sealand dynasty in the south. What else Berna Buryash may have done is lost and the throne passes, probably peacefully, to his son Kashtiliash III. We think Kashtiliash ruled about the same time as the last independent kings of Asher were forced to bow to the rising Mitanni state, which we talked about a bit a long time ago in episode 56, and we'll discuss in a bit more detail when our story gets up north. Kashtiliash, however, is overshadowed by his more successful brother, Ulam Buryash. When Kashtiliash was king, he would send his brother Ulam Buryash out on campaign to go and battle the southern Sealand dynasty, which had so plagued the old Babylonian dynasty. The final king of Sealand was, for some reason, forced out of his own kingdom, possibly as the result of civil unrest, and fled to Elam in southern Iran for sanctuary. 
We don't know what the Elamites did with him, for he vanishes from the records after this, and General Ulamburiash marches his army into the southern swamps and conquers the Kingdom of Sealand, reuniting Sumer and Akkad for the first time in some 275 years. Now, though we haven't been able to say much about Sealand, especially in the last century, it was no small power. Though it seemed to enforce a rural lifestyle, as much for regions of ecological as political necessity, it was still a regional player for nearly 300 years, and seemed to do quite a lot of sea trade, extending its empire at least as far down as modern Bahrain, and may have controlled quite a lot of land and multiple harbors all up and down what is now the east coast of modern Saudi. Though the logistical capabilities of early Kassite Babylonia are deeply obscure, it seems that Ulam Buryash may have loaded his army into boats and taken direct control of Bahrain, at least for a time. With these successes even before his reign, the death of his brother must have made him a shoe-in to succeed as king, and Ulam Buryash ruled an influential and expanding Babylon. One of the only mementos we have from Ulamburiash's reign is a fascinating little artifact, an onyx weight in the shape of a frog, inscribed with Ulamburiash's name and title. The object itself is meant as a sort of standard weight against which you can compare an amount of metal to see if it's exactly one shekel, a practical tool made into a decorative object for use by the rich and powerful. But more interesting is that it wasn't found in Babylonia, or even in Mesopotamia, but all the way up in Armenia, in a valley near the famous Mount Ararat, buried with a pair of nobles in the town of Metsamor. This burial is a bit interesting on its own, showing a scene of human sacrifice with 50 live retainers killed to accompany their noble lady into the afterlife. But the more important takeaway for us is that by the reign of Ulam Buryash, sometime around the 1460s, almost 150 years after the Great Sack, Babylon is now prestigious and financially successful enough to have a visible influence so far away. Ulam Buryash may have had no male heirs, for he was succeeded by his nephew Agam III. Early in his reign, the remaining elements of the newly conquered Sealand dynasty rose in rebellion, and so Agam brought the army down to the old Sealand capital of Dur Enlil, the center of the revolt, and obliterated the city completely, even destroying the holy temple on that site. Agam also ruled in Bahrain, called Dilmun in ancient times, though at some point after his reign, the distance involved may have allowed it to slip from Kassite control. Kassite Babylonia was, by this point, a vibrant hub of economic activity, as can be seen in the archaeological record by the spread of Kassite pottery and lapis lazuli, as well as other Babylonian artifacts throughout the Near East. However, despite this economic and social prominence, there are strong indicators that Kassite Babylonia remained, in a certain sense, very weak. Though it controlled a great deal of territory and sat on some important trade routes, the kings through Agam III appear to have had very little interaction with nearby states. 
There is the conquest of Sealand and the one treaty with the Assyrians a generation before the Mitanni swallow them up. But aside from that, we have very little documentation up to this point that anyone outside Mesopotamia worried about them as a political or military force, which in earlier eras would have been almost natural. But now that we're in the late Bronze Age, we already have the beginnings of diplomatic interconnections between the pharaohs of Egypt, the great kings of the Hittites, and the Marianu charioteers in Mitanni. Now, this is a poorly attested period just in general, so there may be a cache of diplomatic communications from this era just waiting to be uncovered. But it seems for now that the Kassites ruled over Mesopotamia mostly because there was, up to this point, no one else in the region who cared. Perhaps most damningly, however, is the fact that the Kassites are ruling over a technological backwater. This transition is a time of remarkable technological innovations. We've already looked at how the horse and the various woodworking innovations of the chariot have changed the face of warfare, and at Nuzi we briefly mentioned that here we saw one of the earliest glassworking sites in the ancient Near East, allowing for a new and attractive material to partly replace precious stones, clay, and the protoglass material called faience among wealthy households. Over in the Hittite kingdom, we've seen a few mentions that the Anatolians have developed the ability to work in a very limited way with meteoric and surface iron deposits. And while this is only for producing a handful of prestige goods at this point, the foundations of the Iron Age are already being laid in these innovations. In the Levant, New incense, dyes, and spices are being developed for the first time to appeal to the luxury markets of both the Near East and the early Mediterranean societies, including the purple dye that will come to give this region its Greek name, Phoenicia. And it isn't just in engineering that we're seeing technological innovations. Literary works such as the Kurbi cycle and the tales of the Hittites, as well as some tales from Ugarit that we'll be seeing far in the future when this podcast moves to a series on the Levant, show increasing sophistication in their narrative complexity and ability to handle ever deeper topics. Also, technical writing is becoming a more developed form, as we saw in the detailed Kikuli texts on horse-rearing, as well as in Sealand. Before its destruction, a single treatise has been found by modern archaeologists and followed to successfully produce a form of glass paste, usable in many types of further crafting. And in all this, with a few exceptions, happened on what used to be the fringes of the civilized world. Within southern Mesopotamia itself, the great empire of Babylonia is lagging on all of these developments, adopting them for sure, but not seeming to innovate in any field. Rather, as mentioned, they're focused heavily on backwards-looking preservation of an idealized Akkadian Babylonian culture, this is almost certainly a deliberate effort by the dynasty to link themselves to the kings who came before, providing legitimacy for a group that likely still feels itself to be foreigners in Babylon, even after a century and a half of rule. This has plus sides. As already mentioned, they preserved many important works in the Akkadian language and enhanced the cultural prestige of Akkadian enough to make it the language of commerce and diplomacy even into Egypt. But 
While the Kassite period will be one of stability and prosperity, the relative lack of innovation throughout the period will be evidence throughout the Late Bronze Age of a certain weakness in the heart of Babylonia. Whether the conservatism of the Kassites will lead to a diminishment of the kingdom, or if it's a consequence of a badly depopulated Mesopotamia with a greatly weakened agricultural base is unclear. But we're going to see that Babylon will appear powerful and will be regarded by its neighbors as powerful, but will struggle a few times in the face of challenges and appear a bit more stagnant than we would otherwise expect from such a large and seemingly prosperous region. What they do build will look a great deal like what previous rulers built. Temples, canals, walls, and have many of the same long-term costs that the previous generations of canal-based agriculture did. But we'll be seeing the nuances of both good and bad Kassite rule as we continue with this story. Next week, however, the Kassites will move from success to success, joining into the rising international order and engaging with other countries while building up infrastructure and helping Babylonia to recover from the long dark age. So join us next time for some monumental archaeology, some real-world diplomacy, and a bunch of kings with names that all sound the same. Thank you for listening. <laughs>